Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, we'll be getting the latest from Texas, where floodwaters are continuing to rise in the wake of the devastation wreaked by Tropical Storm Harvey. But our main focus of discussion this week is Egypt, which last week was subjected to an unexpected rap on the knuckles by its normally staunch ally, the United States. The Trump administration announced it was withholding up to $300 million in military and economic aid to Cairo because of concerns over Egypt's human rights record. For more on this story, I'm joined by the New York Times Cairo Bureau Chief, Declan Walsh. Declan, thanks a lot for joining us. Hey, Chris, good to be here. How big a surprise, Declan, was this decision by the US to, to, um, to cut or delay financial aid to Egypt, given the apparently very warm relations we've seen established between Donald Trump and the Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi? It was a big surprise, uh, particularly since uh, President Sisi's trip to Washington, D.C. back in April, where he met Donald Trump, went to the Oval Office, had a huge seal of approval. You know, Trump said, repeated this line that Sisi is a fantastic guy and he's doing a great job. And really, at that time, that meeting was seen as a sign that under the Trump administration, the White House certainly was not going to let human rights concerns get in the way of its foreign policy objectives in the Middle East more broadly um, and specifically in Egypt. And um, just to explore the, the amount involved, um, $300 million, I know that's, uh, there, there is um, an avenue there, if you like, to, re- to release that funding at a later stage. But it, it's not a token amount, is it, in the context of e- US annual uh, funding for Egypt of, I think, about $1.3 billion. So this is not a small amount of money. It's not, no. I mean, the, so the, every year uh, the, the Egyptians get about $1.3 billion in military aid and about another 250 in civilian aid. So uh, under, under the, the, uh, the decision by the State Department earlier this week, that means that the Egyptians are actually going to lose just under $100 million of it. That's gone. Um, and there's another $200 million, $195 million to be precise, that has been suspended. So uh, the Egyptians have until next September to get a sign-off from the uh, U.S. Uh, Secretary of State, if it's still Rex Tillerson, um, and that funding can be reinstated. So I guess so far they've lost, you could put it at, you know, relatively small amount of less than 10% of, of their aid. But I guess the real uh, blow in this, if you like, is, is a symbolic one, because, of course, Egypt has been a sort of pillar of American policy in the Middle East all the way back to 1979 to the peace deal between Egypt and Israel. Egypt is the second largest recipient of American aid in the world after Israel. And, you know, the the relationship with Egypt has always been very strong, even at times, for instance, under Hosea Mubarak for many years, where the country was facing a lot of criticism for the lack of democracy, for concerns about human rights and so on. Um, And, you know, the American-Egyptian relationship has sort of stuck through that, through thick and thin. So, you know, combining that history with the warm relationship apparently between Trump and Sisi, who've met each other several times in D.C. at a... a, um, they met again in Saudi Arabia in May at a big uh, meeting of Muslim countries where they were famously, I don't know if you remember, but they were pictured uh, standing together with the Saudi King Salman holding a sort of glowing orb uh, in a picture that was sort of went yes, around indeed. the world. So again, you know, Sisi was seen as, 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 as really one of Trump's best buddies, if you like, in the Middle East. Um, and, and so the symbolism of the Trump administration, or at least the State Department, turning around and saying, 
okay, actually, we're going to take away 100 million and we're going to suspend 200 million was really a bit of a shock to the Egyptians. You could feel that here. And what do you think triggered the decision? Because, I mean, nothing new happened in the past couple of weeks that would that we know about, I think, that would have um, provoked a sudden about turn in U.S. policy. I think there's a couple of things in it, sort of reading the tea leaves. One of them is that, um, you know, the Egyptians are learning uh, that the American administration is not just the White House and it's not just President Trump. So it's also the State Department. They're the people who actually withheld this aid. And, um, you know, they have their own set of concerns. The other element is Congress. Uh, you know, even though President Trump is close to Sisi, uh, there's been a number of very uh, influential Republican congressmen, particularly Lindsey Graham and Senator John McCain of Arizona, who have been critical over Egypt's human rights record uh, in the last number of years under President Sisi. And they were particularly incensed, as, as I understand was Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, over a new law that the Egyptians introduced in May um, that really, you know, criminalizes a lot of NGO activity, uh, makes it very difficult for aid agencies, for human rights monitors in particular to operate here, introduces very stringent controls where the security agencies would be able to uh, influence not only their work, but who they hire, you know, a, a really draconian law that came in for a lot of criticism. Now, as I understand it, um, Rex Tillerson had been, even though this law was introduced by the parliament at the end of last year, it didn't come into effect because it required President Sisi's signature. And um, Rex Tillerson, as I understand it, was privately told by Sisi or by his people that he would not sign this law into this. He would not sign this law. He wouldn't authorize this law. So then he went ahead and did that in May. So in one sense, this seems to be, you know, the State Department uh, under Tillerson seeking to forge out his own relationship in the Middle East, you know, to draw some red lines uh, that, that, that couldn't be crossed. And then the other factor in, in, in what's gone on is Egypt's relationship with North Korea. Egypt has a close relationship with North Korea going back to the 1970s uh, when North Korean military trainers came here and they trained Egyptian pilots uh, in the run-up to the 1973 war with Israel. Um, and since then, a lot of North Korean front companies have been shown to be operating in Egypt and using it as a transshipment point for uh, illegal weapons supplies, uh, particularly along the Suez Canal. There's been a number of um, reports by UN weapons inspectors over the years uh, who are monitoring the sanctions against North Korea and have sort of pinpointed Egypt. So that's a, a sort of a relationship that doesn't get a lot of publicity but it has come under scrutiny in the last couple of months, particularly as tensions between America and North Korea have, have bubbled over. And uh, I think, the, as, as I understand it, the Egyptians or the Americans wanted to make, they, they had brought this point up to the Egyptians. They'd asked them to reduce the North Korean presence here. Uh, that didn't happen to their satisfaction. So again, this decision to cut some aid and suspend other, other, other aid was part of that bundle of concerns, if you like. And is it possible, even Declan? And I know you can't read the minds of everybody in the in the in the White House and uh, State Department, and uh, kind of understand that there are no automatically the motivations for every decision. But is it possible I, that North Korea actually is really what this is about, more so than human rights? You know, the people that I've spoken to say that it, that it's both. That there, that that it is both. It is specifically the NGO law, which is, of course, a human rights issue, but it's also, I suppose, from their perspective, a bit of a respect issue. You know, that they felt that the Egyptians had told them that this law would not come into would not come into force, and it did. So, 
you know, I think that the, in private, the relationship took a little bit of a knock there. And I think also, you know, the Americans want to want, want to show that they that that they are tough on North Korea and that they are um, cutting down on North Korea's ability to ship weapons, you know, in in and out of their country through parts of the Middle East like Egypt. I mean, North Korea, of course, is not just involved with Egypt. I think there was a, I saw a news story last week where um, I think the United Nations had intercepted a an attempt by North Korea to ship some weapons to Syria to a Syrian government entity that apparently is part of the chemical weapons um, industry in that country. So, you know, it's not, it's not just Egypt, but I think the Americans saw Egypt because of its geographical position, because of the long historical relationship that they have with the North Koreans as, as a country that they wanted to, to put some lean on, to put some pressure on to, to make things harder for the North Koreans to do business in this part of the world. You referenced there, Declan, uh, the warm welcome that Trump gave to Sisi in the White House. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that Barack Obama never invited Sisi to the White House um, during his term of office. And uh, um, Trump was particularly effusive in his praise for Sisi on that occasion. Uh, We agree on so many things. I just want to let everybody know, in case there was any doubt, that we are very much behind President al-Sisi. He's done a fantastic job in a very difficult situation. We are very much behind Egypt and the people of Egypt. And, and Declan, we, we've seen this contradiction in other areas as well, which you'd be very familiar with, Qatar, for example, also on North Korea, this kind of disconnect between Trump's own statements and then the actions taken by uh, members of his own administration. And what's your own view on what's going on there? Is there sort of real friction between Trump and, and um, his own cabinet? Or is it very clever politics by him to keep people guessing as to where his foreign policy and where his, what his position actually is on, in various areas of foreign policy? That's a great question. I mean, <laughs> you, one would like to think, I guess, that it's all part of a broader strategy of good cop, bad cop. You know, Trump says something harsh in one way and then Tillerson gets to step in and pull it the other way. In reality, to be honest, it's not really played out like that. I mean, you referenced the crisis in Qatar this summer and there's a, I've been there... I've, been there a couple of times and you know there's a lot to suggest that what happened was you had the Trump President Trump who stood very firmly behind Saudi Arabia and the other countries that are currently imposing a partial blockade on Qatar uh, you know because he he saw them as, as as his close allies he hadn't really examined very closely it seems America's relationship with Qatar and then once this blockade kicked in and People started to mediate, and the State Department got involved, and Tillerson, and so on. I mean, Tillerson has a very different background. He he knows these countries intimately because, of course, he was the head of Exxon for many years, and he's had dealings with both uh, the Qataris and the Saudis and the Emiratis, all of these all of these countries. So he uh, he, he 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 had pre-existing relationships that he was tapping into. He knew it was more complicated than it looked. And then the other thing was, of course, that. You know, America has huge strategic interests in Qatar. Um, they're the largest American military air base in the Middle East is situated just at, a couple of miles outside Doha. Um, it's their main base for operations against the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. Planes take off from there all the time. Um, and, you know, Qatar has been a place where the United States has um, uh, hosted negotiations with the Taliban in Afghanistan. They spoke to other groups that they wouldn't normally be able to meet elsewhere. And so, you know, what what you have was White House coming out in front, saying something quite brash, t- 
taking sides in this dispute, which is kind of unprecedented. There have been other disputes in the Middle East before, but America always presented itself as everybody's friend. It never took sides. So here you had the Trump administration, or the, the White House rather, taking sides. And then you had the State Department and the Defense Department stepping in and saying, hold on, we have our interests in these countries and we can't afford to be seen to take sides. So that seems to be a little bit more what's, hap- what's happening. But we did see, but we have seen in recent weeks that, you know, Donald Trump has been pretty silent on that crisis and Tillerson has been, has been doing the running. But it does seem to point to a fairly dysfunctional um, policymaking process in the American, in, in American government where, you know, one part of government is saying one thing, the other part is saying something sometimes very different. And for the people who are taking cues from those signals in the Middle East, for instance, you know, it can be very confusing because they're saying, well, you know, we don't actually know what the American policy on some of these pretty important issues is. And and while we all keep guessing on, on those matters, just to bring the discussion back to, back to Egypt then for a moment, um, how would you characterise the human rights situation there now, Declan? I mean, how, how repressive is the regime? It's it's pretty it's pretty bad at the moment, to be honest, Chris. I mean, you know, you have uh, this NGO law we spoke about a few minutes ago that the Americans were concerned about. Um, we've had, you know, that is one part of a broader sweep against civil society that's been going on for several years now, and it's kind of deepening all the time. Anyone here who's involved in um, human rights work is often subject to arrests or people are banned from leaving the country. Some of them have had their bank accounts frozen. Um, In the last number of months, uh, at least 100 websites that are sometimes only vaguely critical of the government have been shut down. Others are affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood, which is already banned. Um, People are prosecuted sometimes for what they write on Facebook. Um, and of course, you know, since 2013, uh, when Ibrahim Halawa, among other people, were rounded up in the aftermath of the Rabah uh, massacre, you know, there, there has been many documented cases of uh, what human rights groups call disappearances, people who just sort of disappear into the custody of the security forces. And there's also been a number of people who've been found dead in what are called extrajudicial uh, executions. And sometimes those are the same people who previously disappeared. So... Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of concern about the human rights situation here. Uh, President Sisi is seen to be consolidating his power, and he's also pointing towards a presidential election that's due to take place uh, sometime next year. But even in that case, you know, the, the handful of people who sort of pop their heads above the parapet as potential challengers to him, um, you know, some of them have found themselves being slapped with court uh, prosecutions or other things that are seen as efforts to sort of um, put a spoke in their wheels and get in the way of their ability to, to campaign against President Sisi. And, and, and what's it like for a foreign correspondent there now? I mean, are your own activities monitored all the time or are, are you free to do your work? Um, you know, I mean, I have to say I've been free to do my work pretty much since I've been here. Um, you know, I think for Egyptian reporters, obviously, it's a lot harder. And we do work with, obviously, we have Egyptian reporters in this bureau who work, who work for the New York Times. Um, they're a little bit more vulnerable, if you like, to pressure. Um but in general, for you know, the number of foreign correspondents in, who are based in Egypt has really gone down pretty sharply over the last couple of years, uh, partly because a lot of people have moved to Turkey for, for news reasons, but it's also just become a much harder uh, country to, to operate in. You, know, um, you need permission to do a lot of things. Um, the government 
uh, sometimes those permissions are hard to get. It's often very difficult to just to get to speak to government officials. There's a sort of suspicion of the foreign media, a sense that you know that we are, are are hostile, and that's not always true. I mean, as you know, like in any story, you really want to get both sides. You'd like to speak to 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 the government as well, but they don't always see that in their interest, and that's and that's something that you know we're always working towards trying to trying to trying to draw them out, if you like, and, and, and persuade them that, you know, it's in their interest to tell their side of the story as well. Right. And listen, finally, just on, you mentioned the election next year. Would there be any semblance of a, of a real contest or has all opposition been, been crushed? Is this kind of a, a shoe-in then for CC? I mean, look, there's not much of a sign of it so far. Um, like I said, anyone who has, um, you know, popped their head up has, has had their head pushed back down again pretty quickly. And there's only been a short number of people. Now, of course, we're at least, we're probably... Uh, a little bit less than a year out, so a lot of things can change. But one potentially worrisome thing we saw a couple of weeks ago, certainly from the point of view of opponents of President Sisi, is that there have been uh, trial balloons floated in Parliament that maybe uh, you know his term of office or the Constitution could be amended um, to have a longer term of office, maybe a six-year term instead of a four-year term and so on. And, of course, that's really worrisome for anywhere in Egypt who cares about democracy because it seems to point to... President Sisi uh, getting up to the same sort of tricks that Hosni Mubarak and other Egyptian rulers before him got up to where they tried to install themselves as, if not president for life, at least president for a very long time. And, you know, that doesn't tend to be a very conducive environment for, for democratic, free, free and fair democratic elections. OK. Declan, it's been great to have you on. Thanks a lot for that. My pleasure. Now to the United States where President Donald Trump is to visit Texas today, Tuesday, to observe the response to Tropical Storm Harvey, which has left catastrophic flooding in its wake, in the Houston area in particular. John Holden joins me from the Texan capital, Austin. John, tell us first about where you are. We know Houston has got the worst of this, but what's it like in Austin? Uh, Austin is, is, right now, is fine. I'm looking at my window and it's sunny skies and pretty dry. It, it, it. It seems like the worst of the storm hit here about uh, over the weekend, over last weekend, um, with about three or four days of very, very heavy rain. And, and the nature of, of this uh, city, because of the, where it is, it's quite hilly, and there's a lot of creeks and, 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 and kind of lakes that are usually dry, usually all dried up, and they're all full. And that's where the kind of problems lie in Austin, is, is that roads and stuff end up getting closed because of flooding. But that being said, it's much you're much safer in a place like this than you are in, in Houston, which is is 43 feet above sea level, I think, at its highest point. Right, so it's very um, low lying. Yeah. Very, very low, very low lying, and only and only you know a, a couple of miles from the Gulf of Mexico. So that's where the real that's where the real problems lie. And what's the latest you're hearing about Houston? Are the floodwaters continuing to rise there? They are indeed. Um, they're expecting Harvey's Hurricane Harvey's expected to produce another up to 20 more inches of rain over the next four days, and it's already they've already seen 30 inches of rain since last Friday. And the problem is is that a, a major parts of the city of Houston are, are kind of described like a like a bowl, and they they don't just capture the water; they the water stays there. Do you know what I mean? So, I think there, there's been a lot of different reports as to the number of fatalities, and, and but. No one seems to know for sure yet. The Dallas Morning News has, has, has reported three, but everyone is pretty certain there's going to be a lot more because it's, it's going to be the aftermath when the, as all that water just kind of remains 
for days and days and days before it kind of tends to dry off or, or, or move towards the bayous uh, before anyone will know for sure uh, the number of people who have died. It is a story, it's hard to get a handle on it in that respect, isn't it? I mean, also uh, in terms of evacuations, there was a num- figure yesterday of probably 30,000 people will likely need to be evacuated from their homes. Is that still the figure that's been talked about um, or, or has that changed in the meantime? I think it's gone up and it's interesting because, well, not interesting, but it's it, that there are some striking parallels now between um, Harvey and Hurricane Katrina, which was 12 years ago to the day it hit, that, it hit, that it hit Louisiana. Um, the George Brown Convention Center in, in, in Houston, which was one of the main uh, relief centres was was well beyond capacity very quickly uh, during Katrina, and it's already about two thousand people over capacity now. So things are going to get worse before they get better. And is there any indication, John, as to when it's going to peak? What what's the weather forecast saying? How long more is it going to continue raining before uh, this actually this catastrophe reaches its peak? There's another. They, they can't say for sure, but they but. Everyone is kind of pessimistically assuming it's going to keep raining for another three or four days. And, and uh, John, uh, Donald Trump, as we mentioned at the outside, is due to arrive in Texas today. I think he's going to Austin, um, where you are. What are people expecting from Trump? And do they think the federal government is doing enough to help them here? Well, yeah, that's, that's a, a point that's a question that I, I kind of anecdotally I've, I've had I've talked about with a lot of people here just in relation to kind of comparisons between what hap- what's happening now and what happened with former President George W. Bush and the, kind of, and the slow response of his administration uh, in the aftermath of uh, Hurricane Katrina in 2005, where a lot of people are wondering how he'll, you know, deal with this. Now, at a Monday news conference, in his usual confident, like usual confident way, he said the people of Texas are going to have what they need and it's going to happen fast. Um, but there's been calls that about 150 billion dollar, 150 billion dollar package would be needed. Now that's a lot of money, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if he's able to live up to that. Sure. And- but he's coming here. He'll be he'll be he'll be arriving in in Austin. In first of all, he's going to Corpus Christi, which is a town, the, the, a coastal town a Texas coastal town, which was, was kind of one of the first to be hit, and it's been hit the hardest, second to Houston, I would say. Um, and then he's coming up to Austin to meet the governor, Greg Abbott, as I presume as well, the, the, the Austin mayor, Bill Adler, who um, I'll be interested to see what kind of dynamic there is between those two, because Ms. Mr. Adler has been fairly a fairly vocal critic of uh, President Trump since he got into power on a number of different issues. Um, but... Overall, you know, Texas would be a pretty pro-Trump state. But so, but essentially, what people are looking for is a huge injection of, of funds from Washington that probably will be needed for, for yeah. several years to come. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 this is a huge. This is a really. This is the biggest natural disaster that's that's um, hit this country since Katrina. Um, now, Katrina, since then, uh, you know, many would just argue that that wasn't dealt with properly at all. So, a, a much more, uh, much more proactive and financially proactive response would be needed in order to fix this up. That being said, I imagine Texas is, is, is a wealthier state than Louisiana, which, which bore the brunt of Katrina. And there's more resources here than there, you know, than there might be uh, in, in the state, in its neighbor state. So 
there is existing local resources, but but not the kind that that, that would be needed to clean up in, in any real way. And um, do people think Texas and Houston in particular were sufficiently well prepared for this, John? I mean, there have been natural disasters there, um, hur- hurricane caused by hurricanes, tropical storms in the not too distant past. It seems like that they're, 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 they're getting flash floods on average now and, and on average about five times a year. Not to this extent, obviously, but flooding is, has become the norm since since around 1995 there's been a hundred uh reported floods in houston so it's 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 definitely become a part of, of of life for people there at the same time the kind of infrastructure that would need to be built or the kind of work that would need to be done would is in the billions so i think like any you know like any major city they they know they they probably should do it but they keep assuming maybe you know they won't you know it, it could it could be Money could be spent in better better ways. Well, John, um, hope you can you keep dry there. We'll, we'll wait and see what uh, Donald Trump has to has to offer when he visits there today. But uh, thanks a lot for for filling us in on what's going on there now. No problem at all. That's it for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>